Brilliant. Thank you, Claire. Uh, do keep that passage open. We're going to spend a few minutes uh, having a look at that. I should have said at the beginning of the service, as I'm standing here drinking my tea, uh, do feel free to go and help yourself to a, to a drink at any point. If, um, if, you, if that would help you to not cough or stay awake or just because you fancy one, there are... Oh, there were some chocolate biscuits when the service started. There might still be one or two if your old Tom is looking slightly guilty here at the front. There you go. If I were to give you this pound coin, what would you do with it? What would you do with it? What difference would it make to your life if I were to, if I were to donate this pound coin to you? These days, it's probably not, it doesn't feel like as much as it used to, did it? Maybe it would be, well, at least I could put it in the trolley at Tesco's. Who was thinking that? All right, that's not very good. What, what if I were to give you a £20 note? Well, that, oh, yeah. It's almost like um, Jeremy Clarkson now, isn't it? Anton Deck. What difference would a £20 note make to your life? Maybe not to your life, maybe to your, maybe to your week. It might be a better, better class of coffee to enjoy on a Monday. How much, um, how much money would I have to give you for it to make a significant difference to your life? If I were to write a cheque for £1,000 and give it to you, they say, write a cheque. Remember that? <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Um, I mean, it would bounce, obviously. But, but how would that make you feel? What would you do differently this week if someone, whether or not it's the vicar, were to pay that money into your bank account? The money does make a difference to us, doesn't it? The only question is, how much would it take? For there to be a difference. And as we come to the second half, especially of Philippians 2, there's an opportunity to reflect on what difference does it make what Jesus has given to us and what he, what he has done for us. How easy it is as Christians to, to go, when we hear at 20 pounds, but to kind of go, oh, amen, when we hear about what Jesus has done. Now I understand that because we deal in the tangible, don't we, the visible and the stuff which we can feel and see. Um, our passage this evening gives us this opportunity to reflect on some of those things that we cannot see now, but make a huge difference, both to now and to the future. So our passage tonight, I want to say, is practical. Last week's, if you were here, was, was just glorious, wasn't it? It's one of those passages in the, in the New Testament which points us to the depth to which Christ would go in order to bring us with him to the heights. And the rest of chapter 2 today is basically saying, so what? If having an extra £1,000 would change your life this week, what is the impact of your faith in the Son of God who died and rose for you this week? Because of this, verse 12, therefore. Now it makes no sense whatsoever to start a reading with the word therefore, does it? You just pause to think about it. What does therefore mean? So, consequently, for that reason. And we should immediately be saying to ourselves, well, for what reason? And so when we read a word like that, we have to ask, well, what has gone before? What is it that we are following on from now? As I said, if you were here last week, keep in mind the first half of chapter 2 and that great call to imitate Jesus Christ and his humility, his pattern of lowering himself in order to be exalted. But even further back in the letter, we're still very much here following on from the call at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, 
to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So the humility of Christ in the first part of chapter 2, if you like, gives us the why and the how. Today points us a bit more in the second half of the chapter to the what. Therefore, okay, just have a look at those next few verses for a moment, 12 to 18. We're going to spend most of our time in those verses tonight. They feel a bit complicated at first glance, don't they? As some passages in the letters in the New Testament can sometimes do. What is the big message here? What is going on? Therefore, I want to say Paul gives two instructions in here when you unpack what he is saying. Two instructions and then something that results from them. Here they are. Instruction number one, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12. That's the first thing you should do if you want to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, as you imitate his humility. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the first one. Second thing, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Those are the two imperatives to instructions in these verses. And the result, well, there are several, but verse 15 says, then you will shine like stars in the sky. Let's have a think about those two things. Number one, work out your salvation. The first part of verse 12, by the way, is, is kind of, it's almost in brackets. It's a kind of a preamble. Paul says, as you've always done, when I'm with you and when I'm not with you, continue to work out your salvation. It's not a new instruction. It's not a kind of correction for the, these Christians because they've been getting it wrong. It's an encouragement to keep on going with what they're already doing. What does it mean to work out your salvation? Here are two things it doesn't mean, first of all. Number one, it doesn't mean work hard to make sure you're really saved. Work hard to gain your salvation. We know it doesn't mean that because it would contradict everything Paul writes, not just here in Philippians, but in all of his letters, as well as the things said in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, the emphasis is always on God's grace towards sinners like me, ordinary people like you. doesn't mean that. Secondly, it doesn't mean you need to try harder to, to understand, to get your head around your salvation. It's not work out like you do with a maths problem. You know, figure it out, your salvation. Try and get your head around it. It's not that either. It does mean put your salvation into practice. Live it out. Jesus has worked salvation for you. He's working it in you. So now put that salvation to work to live it out. To use the money example, if you're given, if you're given a load of money, what are you going to do with that? Put it to work. Do something practical with it. Let it make a difference. To use one of the pictures that Paul uses in some of his other letters, not here in Philippians, he sometimes speaks of those who are in Christ taking off their old clothes and putting on new clothes. Clothes of righteousness. It's an image of living differently because we're no longer wearing rags, but we're we're, we're we are wearing uh, finery and riches. When you're dressed in fine robes, whatever that might look like, a white tie or a or a, a beautiful dress, then you carry yourself differently, don't you? You feel different. Uh, you live differently. Work out your salvation. Because wouldn't it be weird to be a believer in Jesus 
to have been called by him and filled with his Holy Spirit, and then just carry on as though nothing has changed. No, says Paul, put it into practice. Work it out. What Jesus has done is making you a different person. You can't just carry on as you were before. And it's not just work out your salvation here, is it? It's work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Famous words. Which doesn't mean this should make you terrified, like you've seen a spider or a ghost or whatever, whatever it is that would make you most terrified. This fear and trembling is about vulnerability. It's about the humility that Jesus demonstrated, as we saw last week, that we are to imitate. It's fear as in awe. Work out your salvation in awe of what he's done. Now, always a, always a danger when we read passages like this as Christians, that we so easily slip into thinking, right, it's an instruction. Feels a bit daunting. Can we do it? The answer is, no, we can't. But this passage is not a, a passage to send us away feeling slightly guilty as we set ourselves up for another week of trying to do what Jesus tells us and not doing very well at it. Because there is gospel here. Look at what Paul says next. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Praise the Lord. If you remember nothing else tonight, remember this. The gospel that Jesus has done for us, what we could not do for ourselves, is not just something which tells us how Jesus rescues us when we first come to Christ. No, the gospel that Jesus does for us, what we cannot do for ourselves, is the whole of the Christian life. It's how Jesus works in us day by day and equips us by his Spirit to live now as his people. All gospel. The whole of the Christian life. It's all grace. It's all Jesus in us. Not you and me struggling to do our best. That is not the point of this passage. It's God who works in you, and what he is doing is enabling you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's not even just about what we actually do. It's even about what we want to do, what our will says. Have you, have you experienced that, that moment when you know you've done something that you shouldn't have done or said something, or maybe you haven't done something which you think, oh, I should have done that. And there's that little moment and you think, oh, that's not what I wanted to do, but I've done it again. Well, Jesus is even at work on that part of our lives, the part of us which decides what to do even before we do it. Picking up on, if you glance back across to the beginning of chapter 1, it's a, it's a bit like where Paul says in verse 6 that he is confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Who's going to get you to heaven? Not you. Jesus is. Good news. And we can celebrate. Um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then secondly, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Apparently, so I have read, the British have become better at complaining than they used to be. I don't know if this is true. Although still not as good as some other nationalities. Yeah, I mean, you, there, are, there, are, there are several nationalities present in church this evening. Um, others can comment on this later on. It was based on some sort of survey about um, how many people of different nationalities are willing to send food back in restaurants when it's not good enough. 
So whether that really tells you about um, the natural character or not, I don't know. What I do know is this. There is something in human nature, isn't there, which I guess just makes us grumble and complain from time to time. Um, even the sunniest person, um, may, maybe not you, but um, I think most of us struggle with this to at least some ex extent. If you've ever read the story of the book of Exodus, we're just starting it in our morning services, you'll know that it's one of the things the Israelites did time and again as Moses led them through the desert after they'd been rescued from Egypt. They complained and grumbled. Paul says here, we're not to be like that, which is a challenging thing, isn't it, on a whole host of levels. Um, everyone does it. Everyone argues. Why not us? Now, this is not a ban on speaking up when something is not right or you know, complaining about injustice or anything like that. I think, first of all, it's a recognition that many grumbles are fueled not by such high motives, but more by a kind of self-centeredness and a desire to get what we want, to, to put ourselves first. That would make sense in the context of this passage, wouldn't it, when we've just been reading about Jesus who put others before himself. But there's another thing about this, which is that it makes us different uh, from the world around us. It says we're not just going to live like that and just carry on because now we belong to Jesus. You know, sometimes I hear people talking about how the church needs to be relevant. That's not a bad thing to say. But it turns out that what they mean by that is we need to be the same as the culture around us. We don't need to stand out too much because people will think we're strange. I'm more and more convinced that that's rubbish, actually. And I was listening to a podcast. Um, uh, was it a podcast? I can't remember where it was, actually. But um, some of you will have come across the historian Tom Holland, who's written quite a lot about Christianity. Um, I don't think he'd call himself a Christian, but I think he gets something right about Christianity when he says, he says to the church, you need to embrace your weirdness. You need to embrace your weirdness. He says, basically, what Christians believe is quite weird. It starts with a God-man who was raised from the dead. This is not what other people believe, is it? Uh, we share a meal which involves sharing his body and blood. The ways of life that Jesus calls us to live are not the same as every other belief system that there has been. He's right about this. And if we want to be relevant uh, in our society, in our culture, then we need to allow what is different about our faith to stand out. And that's not about being strident uh, or uh, determined uh, that we are always right. It's about working out our salvation and doing everything without grumbling or arguing. Okay. So what difference does all of this make? Well, just have a look at those verses 14 to 16. I said the result is that you will shine like stars in the sky. Actually, I cheated a little bit when I said it's just that, because there are three things that Paul says follow on here, although they're all kind of interconnected. Um, and I wanted to keep it simple. But if you look for the words, so that, and then. Verse 15, this is what will happen. If you do those things, so that you, you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. That's the first result. Secondly, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And finally, verse 16 still, then I, Paul, will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. <clears throat> now it's all linked together. Um, 
if we live out our relationship with Jesus in practice, we become blameless and pure. doesn't mean that we're perfect yet. Um, that's, the, that's the trajectory, though, and Jesus is working on us even now. And that phrase, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation, it's not an accidental phrase. You might be able to see that there's a footnote from the book of Deuteronomy there. I mentioned how the Israelites grumbled in the desert. It's a bit of a sign of things to come. And before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy, God warns them that they're going to be unfaithful to him, um, despite his faithfulness towards them. And he says of the people, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. See, for those who are in Christ, Paul flips it around. says, that is not how you will be. You will be blameless and pure in Jesus. And as Jesus works in you, you will be so different. You will stand out like stars in the night sky. It's that thing of when, when a jeweler puts diamonds on a piece of black velvet so that the brilliance shines out. Or I don't know if you've ever been sort of out somewhere so much in the countryside, too much light pollution in Thurmby, isn't there? Or if you've been camping somewhere and you just walk out in the night and it's bright with stars, so many stars shining. That's what you'll be like, Paul says, the children of God who are in Christ. That will be the result as Jesus enables us to work out our salvation. In this generation, at the school gate, in the office, with your neighbours and your friends. And Paul says, then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. Again, we get Paul's eternal perspective, doesn't he? Always good to remember in Philippians, he's sitting in his prison cell writing these things, and yet he's thinking, great, this is what I've got to look forward to, because this is what God is doing. Even verse 17, if he's being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Paul paid a heavy price, didn't he? In earthly terms. But he says, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, and you should too. Lots of great things there. My time has nearly gone. I just want to finish by asking the question, okay, so what does that mean for you and me this week? And to look at something a little bit different. Because the last part of the passage is quite different, isn't it? Paul gets quite personal. And we don't have time to look in huge detail at at these two characters, but it's a real personal touch, as Paul tells the Philippians about these two men who Paul is planning to send ahead of him to visit them in Philippi. And the key thing is that both of them are examples of all this stuff that Paul has been writing about. So first says Timothy, Verses 19 to 24, Paul's closest lieutenant. He was the one who was with Paul when he first went to Philippi and started the church. And the whole... That's not right, actually, is it? That was Simus. Anyway, he's one of Paul's lieutenants. Whether or not he was there at the time Paul first went to Philippi or not, my memory of all of Paul's journeys isn't quite sharp enough there. But the hallmark of his life that Paul wants us to notice is Timothy's humility. That's the key characteristic. It's there in verse 21. And it's just what we've been talking about. Everyone looks to their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but not Timothy. Verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. That call from back in verse 5 to imitate the humility of Jesus is what Timothy is doing. He's modelling it for us as he 
like the Lord Jesus who he follows, looks not to his own needs, but to the needs of others. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But it's just often tough to do that. What does that mean for us this week? Helping the person in need rather than just watching the football. Volunteering and committing to be involved in, in something which is going to take more effort on my part, maybe for not much gain for myself. Spending time with someone who uh, I'm really too distracted and would find it easier to ignore. There's all kinds of things it could mean, but they're generally not easy. But that's Timothy, filled with the Spirit, working out his salvation. He's exhibit A for working out your salvation with fear and trembling, without grumbling or arguing. And then secondly, there's Epaphroditus in those last few verses. And his quality, which Paul highlights here, is very similar, really, uh, but I'll call it selflessness. Not that different to humility. Um, His experience has been very different to Timothy's, but he ends up in a very similar place. Which shouldn't be surprising, because they're both imitating the same person, aren't they? As they live it out. Uh, Whereas Timothy was one of Paul's travelling companions, Epaphroditus was one of the Philippians. And we learn about him in those last few verses. The Philippians had sent him to support and encourage Paul and take care of him. In the course of all of this, Epaphroditus, it seems, had fallen seriously ill and been close to death. And now he's recovered and Paul is keen to send him back. The Philippians have been worrying about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus has been worrying that the Philippians have been worrying about him and Paul's, I think, been worried about the whole situation, really. And so Paul sends him home with the instruction that they should welcome him with joy. Why? Well, again, look, it's because he has put others' needs before his own and he has worked out his salvation. He almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Great example, isn't it? Two great examples. Normal people. I know they're written about in the Bible but they're normal people, Christians filled with the Spirit, shining like stars, not just like everyone else, because of what Jesus was doing in their lives. So, let's continue to work out our salvation this week with fear and trembling. That's not something to screw yourself up with determination that you're going to go and do as you leave church. It's something to say thank you to Jesus for, because he is the God who will be at work in us uh, to will and act according to his good purpose. And he's calling us to follow him so that we will shine like stars uh, in this generation where we find ourselves. Look different and point to the God who is our saviour. Let's pray.